I am Citizen 44. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. Coming to you from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. This is show number 83. Got a double header today. Two really awesome people. Tanya O'Connor and Charlie Hurley. Tanya is a psychic healer and reflexologist. And that kind of scratches the surface of what she does to help people get in touch with themselves and lead a more happy life. Super nice lady, very interested in helping young people get on track emotionally. And Charlie Hurley, similarly, has been to Vietnam four times and he too is interested in helping young people achieve a higher quality of life through increasing their education and just giving them basic necessities. He's dealt a lot with very poor communities here in Vietnam. So speaking of Vietnam, that's where I am. That's where I've been since the 12th of January. So much has happened. It's mind blowing how much I've done in the short time I've been in this country. I've made more friends here in under a month than all the friends that I currently have in San Francisco after living there for eight years. Incredible relationship opportunities here, and I've really soaked it up. Right now I'm at the Linkley House. Lynn, super sweet lady, she runs this place. Before I checked in here at the Linkley House, I had another amazing stay with another Lynn, except a male version of Lynn, also known as Truck, and his wife Tu, and their daughter Zuzu, living above an amazing sushi bar called Luna Sushi. I was there for a week and a couple of days. The bed was just too hard, and as much as I wanted to stay there and it was really convenient, I could not take another night of sleeping on such a hard bed. I wasn't sleeping. I was getting naps during the day based on pure exhaustion. The food was fantastic. Some of the best Japanese cuisine I have ever had in my life. All vegan for me, of course. They made incredible veggie rolls and bowls of deliciousness. It was amazing. It was a great foodie experience. Both two and Lynn were university educated in Germany. Two worked in sushi bars in Germany and 95% of their business is delivery. They're slammed from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. with a break in the middle. They take a little siesta between 3.30 and 5. But other than that, hardcore, man. These people deliver a lot of damn sushi. So just to backtrack a little bit, when I first arrived in Ho Chi Minh on the 12th, I had booked a hotel. I got into the hotel a little late because the plane was delayed. So I showed up about 1 a.m., checked in, went to my room, got all unpacked, looked at my bedding, there were long black hairs all over the pillowcases. So that totally freaked me out. There's no way in hell I'm sleeping in this bed, right? They didn't even give me clean sheets. So I went right downstairs with a smile on my face and my hand extended and said, this is totally inexcusable. I cannot stay here. I want my money back and I'm gonna be looking for a ride to a new place. So I went back upstairs. I found the Winky House. The Winky House was the only place that was available Thank goodness I was able to check in at 2 a.m. 
I was greeted by Ruby and X, the two proprietors there, super sweet people. They have two little kids, Winky, the daughter, who's seven, and their seven-month-old son, Seaver. They were my host family, and we became very close. I'd play with the kids on the floor while they were doing their thing, and we ate together and took a trip together, and it was just a fantastic experience. So they totally bailed me out from a nightmarish experience. Actually, they bailed me out from two nightmarish experiences. After my stay expired there, I decided I needed to save a little money, so I checked out a couple of hostels. Oh my goodness, that was one of the most disgusting experiences I've ever had in housing. I stayed in hostels in Thailand a few times, and all three times were fantastic. But these two hostels I checked out unfortunately resembled prisons. They were really gross, but the people were very nice, and they let me have my money back, and I hightailed it back to Winky House for another week, which is where and when I met Charlie Hurley. Also, right next door to Winky House, my first meal was at this vegan place, and this is where I met Sophie. And Sophie and I have had a non-romantic love affair since the day we met. She's got four children. She's 40 years old. She's gorgeous. Her children range from seven to 17. Like with most women here with children, she's a single mom. She fed me almost every day. Again, more family, more family, more family. Also, incredibly enough in all this, I have found a job which I will start next week after I return from Cambodia to deal with my visa. Yep, I had a phone interview that went well, and I received a phone call to go in and personally receive an offer letter. So there you go. I'm going to Cambodia in a couple of days. I'll be there for a couple of days, entering with a tourist visa and returning with a business visa. And then on Thursday, the 13th, I will start my new job as the marketing manager for SGH Asia right here in Ho Chi Minh City. And I believe I will have a top floor office with a view. Big fish, small koi pond. The people have been great. The food's been great. The pollution here is a bit much. And we also have the coronavirus floating around here from China. So people are all wearing masks. But other than that, it's a brilliant experience. There you go, I've got a job, I've got friends. I talk to my daughter every few days. I finally got a hold of my son, chatted up with him. His birthday's coming up, happy birthday, Sam. Sam is gonna be 16, very excited for Sam. I talk to my dad every couple of days. I talk to my friend Robbie Lindauer, and I've got good connections back home. So it's working out. I made a good decision. Like with most of my decisions, they're all very timely and very good. All right, let's get on with this show. Sin chao, kamun. Doing well, Tanya. How are you this fine evening? Very good, very good. I believe you are also a Scorpio. 
I am a Scorpio. You must be attracting Scorpios this month because believe it or not, my birthday is on the same day as your daughter's. You're a November 7th baby? November 7th. Well, you know, it's a teeny tiny world and we're all just fingers on the same hand. That is true. I'm very passionate about making a difference in the world. And I'm a grandmother now as well, so it's more important than ever. My healing arts have really taken that direction using different modalities to help people really plant new beliefs in an affirmation form. Go a little deeper, deep in the subconscious so that it can grow and really flourish because truly I feel it's not for the next generation for this world to change. I personally feel it is in my generation that this world is going to take a massive change and to be an instrument in that in whichever way I can. Most recently, I'm doing more with my Irish music. I honestly had never planned that. It kind of came to me. So I began to sing in Gaelic and singing to different energies and found that people experienced huge clarity in their mind when I sang that way and a lot more compassion and a bit more room for them to even find their purpose. In a world that's so full and cluttered, it's often hard to find that. That's a brief view of what it is that I'm doing for people. You are not a Native American. No, I'm not. I'm a pretty intense Dublin girl, that's for sure. But I've been here a very long time, but uh, no, I don't think you can take the Dublin girl out of me. <laughs> I've only had one other person from Ireland on the show. Do you know the band, The Young Dubliners? Yeah. Keith Roberts is the lead singer, and he's been on the right. show. So there is a wee bit of Irish connection here. <laughs> You sent me some samples of some of this Gaelic singing and the tones that come out of your mouth are really quite extraordinary and I can see how those affect people in certain ways.
afterwards moved to Ireland with my mum and dad. Grew up with a huge family of eight kids, five brothers and two sisters. And quite a traumatic childhood on many levels. But living in a very beautiful place that was five minutes from the Phoenix Park in Dublin, which is a glorious park with castles and deer and whatnot. And really that was my life saving grace as I grew up. I loved nature from the very beginning. And when I left school, I went to Italy and worked as an au pair and began to get out in the world. I'd always found this desire to want to do something more with people. It led me to going to college after I had my children. Um, I think having my children really set that course because when I had my first daughter, Chantal, who's 35 now, when I had her, it changed the course of my life. I signed my own death warrant because I didn't want to have a cesarean like a lot of women were having at that time. I didn't think it was necessary, but the doctors thought it were. So I had to sign a waiver for my own death in case anything happened, and I did. And once I did that, something happened. At age 21, the dial changed, and I realized we had a capacity to heal far greater than anybody had ever told me. But even in the fearful moments of making a decision like that, I felt no fear. I felt this doubtless experience, and it began to guide me bit by bit and never stopped since that day. Always delving deeper in how one can live here as a human and remove the enormous effects of any trauma that happen in the body, which normally affects so many relationships. And without trauma, when that's healed, Relationships heal so much easier because those 
edges are not there in the same way. They're not there. It was my own journey to heal my own deep wounds that made it very difficult for me to be here that took me on that journey. My dad was drunk every single day, hence he was extremely violent. My mother had major nervous breakdowns nearly all the time. And strangely enough, I was just looking at photographs that my mom for the very first time sent me from Ireland of me when I was a child. And I haven't seen them since I was a child. And there's a picture of me sitting there when I was nine holding a baby. And I suddenly realized, oh my God. I have been mothering children since nine because my mom really wasn't able to keep up with all of it. It was just too much. It was a very difficult, traumatizing childhood. The only great memory that I can recall, not to say that there isn't more, were really more with my grandmother because I was allowed that playfulness that a child could have instead of having to be so grown up and keep it together. At the same time, I'm very grateful for moments I had in the park. We all used to go out there a lot. Nature was a huge comfort to my soul and it was one of the reasons why I used to do little songs towards that years ago. There was three bedrooms, 10 people. There wasn't enough room. I remember everybody queuing up for the bathroom. You were lucky if you got a bath once a week. And even then, it was like you were overdoing it. I remember I was the kind of person that would have loved a bath every day. I'm like that now. That was very hard for me to give that up. And it was very scary, I'll be honest. It was very, very scary. I felt like I was not quite sure what was going to happen, but I always knew what was probably going to happen by the sound of footsteps coming home. And the older, two older siblings would try and be protective and what have you, but as time went on, they disappeared too. It was very much every child for themselves growing up. It really was. It really was. And everybody divided. I stayed at home until I was 18. And I think I did it more as a protection. I might have been ready to have left a little bit before that, but I didn't because I think I felt an enormous loyalty to my mom. And knowing the divide that had gone on between Irish and English, my mom being English and her living in Ireland, I didn't know that until I witnessed just how deep and dark it had gone in people. But often people wouldn't be there for my mom because she would have been considered British. At that time, there wasn't free service and for people who were struggling in that way, as there is now. But there wasn't then. So she was very lonely. And I think it might have been there that I really developed this desire to inspire and to be there for the deepest, darkest moments of a human being. 
and to allow them to make their way through it. I guess I learned it at a young age. Just remember it being overwhelming. So much to keep together all the time. Thankfully, we're coming back together a little bit these days, all of the family, so that's good. My dad just died in 2016. Uh, my mom is still alive. And literally not until my dad died was the first time we were all lined up at the funeral. A strange sort of happening. Nobody planned it that way. But after the funeral had taken place, we were in a hotel for a gathering, and somebody suggested we all stand in the line for a photograph. And I remember there being a bit of kerfuffle. And then suddenly everybody got together, and we all lined up arm over arm over each other. And I had never seen us all lined up, and, I, and I've kept those pictures since then. It was the first time we'd all come back together. And I remember when I stood over my dad's coffin, I was connecting with his energy. Even though he was supposedly dead, I had an experience that when I put my hands over his dead body, I felt energy. When I took it off, I didn't feel it. And I put it back on, and I felt energy. So I stayed with them until that dissipated. I remember nobody questioned what I was doing. They just allowed me to have that. And it was one of the best things I think I'd ever done for myself because I, I felt no more grief after that. Because it all left with his soul into the world. It was like as if he'd waited for me. And somehow that connected me more with all my siblings too. And next year, for the very first time, we will have a family gathering in Ireland. We're all trying to work that out right now. <laughs> in a lifetime, I would say if I was to be dying tomorrow, I would be grateful that I had made it this far with my family because so many people maybe die without that connection. And I now know on every level how important that is, not only with family, but there is something very particular with family. I'm not quite sure really what that is. One calls it blood, but... I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's a very interesting, sensitive experience, family is. I never thanked anybody for leaving here before, but I did thank my dad, strangely enough. I thanked him that in his passing, it had united a family that somehow before that found it very difficult to do. My mom's from West Cork, Ireland. An odd time I'll get a letter, and I sent her a couple of letters, but I don't hear from her that much. But she lives down there near my brother. We recently got her moved down there out of the house in Dublin because she was still living in the old house. And she needed to move out. She's in a better place where she is down there. Perhaps she'd prefer to be in Dublin. <laughs> Dublin and West Cork are two very different places. Where did you go to college? Pierce College in Dublin for two years full time. It was a wonderful time because I went with my sister-in-law. And uh, we had 15 subjects that we had to study. And uh, you had to do British and Irish exams, strangely enough. It was tough because I did it much later in life. I was almost 40 when I finished 
But I did it because I loved every single thing that I was studying. And I loved being at college with my sister-in-law. <laughs> Nothing like going to study something that you love and have meaning to you and have meaning to other people and will help other people in some way. What was your course of study? Reflexology, the feet, the hands, and the head. Indian head massage, which focused primarily on the head and the face. Nutrition, um, anatomy and physiology, philosophy, yoga, all focused so that you could literally walk out the door as a masseuse. I think in the U.S., well, certainly in Arizona, it takes nine months to be qualified as a masseuse. In Dublin, at least, it takes two years. And it's full-time, Monday to Friday. But you usually have to do other subjects besides massage and anatomy and all that kind of stuff. We had a communications class. It was very broad what we did. But at that time, when I was in college, it wasn't as popular as it is now. I have a teenager making his way through in his senior year, and I was recalling how uninteresting everything seemed to me at that time. <laughs> I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my son is going through some of that, so it kind of reminded me of today. But I still managed to make it through. Honestly, when I look back, I'm not quite sure how I did, but somehow I did it, which, of course, allowed me to go to college later, you know. I somehow kept it together. And I realized later, wow, I did quite well. I just didn't know that I was doing well. <laughs> if that makes sense. I always remember writing and doing my homework on my bed. That was the only space. And I used to love writing. Um, and it's funny when I looked back, a lot of the essays, the teachers in the back and say, very good essay, but very morbid. I think the stories were really telling the her without me realizing what was going on in my life. Um, I wish I had looked at it and realized that I was telling my own story, but I loved to write. What made you decide to go in this specific healing arts direction? Because of the traumas of my own life. Because I still felt that there was one particular trauma that was still affecting me. If I thought about it, I could fall to pieces still. So I knew it wasn't done. And with all that I had learned, I felt like there had to be another way. So I went on a search and I think I became very determined. And one of my girlfriends ended up doing a workshop connected to Bruce Lipton and Rob Williams with Psychate. And she gifted me the workshop. And I went to it in Sedona at the time. And I remember that being another turning point because lots of people in that workshop were focused on wealth and whatever they wanted to achieve in that way. My focus wasn't on wealth. My first focus was on, I would like to be able to think of this trauma and not disintegrate. So that was what I went in with. And we immediately started doing the work in the workshop. And I chose that trauma. I did not explain that trauma to anybody whatsoever. I just thought of the trauma. She did the muscle testing and the balancing while I was thinking about it. And through a process of muscle testing me, and me feeling it, suddenly, I did not feel it to the same degree that I had always felt it. Everything that used to go off like fireworks, I felt was over. It had ended. And I remember afterwards thinking to myself, how curious. I had gone from feeling like I could have gone crazy to something very calm. 
at the end of the day, I went to the gentleman who was running the workshop because the founder, Rob Williams, was there training this particular man. But I wanted to speak to the founder. And I told him my experiences because I had almost wanted to walk away from the workshop thinking to myself, this thing is not a way to kind of release the impact of trauma. It's like you're limping all the way through your life. You're never really in the Ferrari that you were made to be in. And I was so impressed with it, I came back the next way. And that was in 2007. And in 2008, I did the advance because I was so impacted. And I still am till this day. I couldn't imagine my life without doing that muscle testing work because I find it a wonderful way to be able to rely on your own internal intelligence and to come back to yourself as such a resource. People call it loving yourself. You can call it so many different things, but really it's like a return to something that you always were, that you never thought you had your own inner Google mind. Press Google and go wherever you want on the inside if you know how to do it. The workshop really changed my life and allowed me to stay with this work. I went on to do another training in California for PTSD. Touching a human being and also balancing with a human being can actually help to de-traumatize a human being. It doesn't have to be a long process. Um, and I don't think it always has to be heavily medicated either. Over time, I believe all of trauma could eventually be gone. I think you have to get right down to the root of it. It was in such a painless way doing the balance work. I don't recall feeling pain when I was doing the healing. I felt the intensity of being in it, but I didn't feel pain. And that was an extremely painful trauma. It's not something your mind can wrap itself around. It's its entire body experience. Your mind catches up a bit later. <laughs> Always be learning more because in the last five years, there's so much information that they have learned about the mind that you have to keep up. You can't be talking about the same information when you were a teenager to what teenagers are experiencing now. Now we know more about their minds. That's, in my opinion, my responsibility to be aware of that because my responses to a teenager have to be congruent and they have to be current, understanding their development in their brain at that time. And I honestly have such a hunger for the compassion of understanding that more because I think it's my responsibility to grow in that way and to always be sharpening my own personal tools, not just for working with other people, but for own my own living and for the people around me. Are you working with all ages? Yes, I'm seven up. I've even worked with people on their deathbed, which has been quite a profound experience for me. For example, one person in particular who had a terrible fear that she would die similarly to her mother. So what we did was we released that fear. We allowed it to be what it is, and we released it into the air and through her body. And she died in such a peaceful way, so gently. And I realized, wow, you know, to be with people in the beginning, in the middle, in the end, it's really such a journey. It's a very vulnerable entry. You know, after having given birth to my children at home on my own, you realize how vulnerable and powerful that is, but it's pretty similar on the way out, too.
I think young people today are going through different things than when I was young, when you were young. There's a yeah. lot of digital distraction. There's a lot of overload of information. Sure. Even my own children, my son is 15. I didn't know half the things or was aware of much of anything that he is aware of now. And it seems that all this information is a burden on a child's life and that they're overexposed to things. And maybe a need for someone like you is more important now as we become seemingly more and more disconnected from our reality. I agree. Hence my responsibility too. I started a training myself with Dr. Dan Tigal to go further into the teenage brain because I almost feel like if the teenage brain was better understood, it is the most beautiful mind. And those minds, if they are mistreated, they end up in prison. We have prisons overloaded with teenagers. Their brains aren't even developed and we're punishing them for something that never got developed for whatever reason as a child. And I realized the better that you respond to a teenager, the more you're building connections in the brain for them to deal with difficult situations. But if you're always a nag, to flip the nag into a complimenting, inspiring, invigorating parent who take the time to understand how their minds are currently working and keeping up to date with that. I told my son, I said, I'm keeping up to date. I'm learning what's going on inside of you, what it must be like. And I realized how he listens when I say stuff like that. I'm not going off old that or what I did when I was a teenager or what my parents did or didn't do or what anybody else was doing. No, brand new set of rules for exactly what you're saying. We are living in a world where they are weighted down with information they should have never had come across so young. Unnecessary. Traumatizing. So I think there is a huge responsibility, I feel personally, to educating myself sharply. Being one of the most fabulous communicators with my own teenager so that I can reach more of them. The human's biggest problem is lack of appropriate education. We don't even know anything about us. We are not qualified to be raising other human beings. I love what you just said there, Matt. It's true. And as a parent, I would have been able to say to you about four or five months ago, you know what, I think I'm failing. I don't know who this child is. I don't know how to reach him. And then I took it upon myself to say, I will master this through my passion of loving this individual. I will find a way that I've never found to reach him. And I think we have to admit it as parents that you have a clue. Sharpen your tools. Get out of what you've been doing and find a way to pinpoint the finest qualities they have. And at the same time, finding more beautiful, loving ways to reach them. If we don't reach them, what's going to reach them will not be good. Nobody ever taught me that. Nobody ever taught me I should do that. And most people don't admit the fact that you have a clue what you're doing. Step back and stop resisting changing yourself. Because you can't change anybody else. Do one thing today that you're unwilling to do. Just one. If you always sit in the same chair, God damn it, 
it in another one. Break the pattern of wanting to become stuck in something. For some reason, human beings have resistance to change. We must change that. And let's start with myself. It can't start with anything else. If I can't do it in my own backyard, I can't do it anywhere. What are you supposed to do if you don't know what to do when no one's telling you any differently? That's true. I think like the hundred monkeys sometimes. Eventually, something is going to tip the balance, but we're not there yet. We've got to be a hell of a lot more passionate than we are right now. Angry is one thing, but passion is a whole lot better because there's no one to blame. It is so important to educate the seedlings we have here to understand this blame game is the sickest game that has ever existed. There's no one to blame, including yourself. No matter what, in my last breath, I'll know I gave it all I got. I hope to inspire, if I can, in my time and in my moments and with whatever I've got, to perhaps release a few more people. I think we all have to find a way to maximize the weirdest, quirkiest parts of ourselves and really find a great way to share that with people so that more and more people can be free. Because I don't think we know what freedom is. It sounds lucky. The time that I'm working with somebody, it's a focus on what it is that they want. And it's a do-with process. It's not something that I do to somebody. It's collaborative. For me, the new world is about collaboration. It's not about you tell me what's best for me. And I just keep walking around thinking I don't have any of the answers inside of myself. No, it's allowing you to have more access to yourself, your own inner access, your own Google mind, your own mind doctor, to be much more connected to that knowing instead of so disconnected. So always in all of the sessions, that is what I focus on with people so that they can reconnect in that way. Tell us how we can find out more about you. You can find me by calling me at 480-622-4902. You can also look on my website, Celtic-Touch.com. And that's spelled with a C, C-E-L. Thank you, Tanya, for spending the time. Thank you for all you're doing in the world, Matt. You're making a huge difference.
Charlie Hurley, you're my maiden voyage here in Vietnam. I have not done a show yet here, haven't recorded anybody. You're my first one. Okay, I'm very excited to be your maiden. <laughs> Charlie, I met you here at Winky House where I've been staying 15 days. Yeah, we met yesterday, so good to talk to you. When did you arrive in Vietnam? I arrived in Vietnam at the beginning of December, so that was nearly eight weeks ago and I'm due to go home in the next few days. This is not your first time to Vietnam? No, this is my fourth time here. The first time was very quick, just two weeks in Ho Chi Minh City and Canto in the Delta, but what I saw I liked. So on my next trip with a group of friends going through Southeast Asia, I split off from them and went from Luang Prabang to Hanoi by myself and then spent four weeks traveling from north to south. During that time, I met a lot of people through the Couchsurfing website. It was very good. I didn't ask people to host me, I just put a public trip, said where I was going to be, and people offered to meet me, which was great. I find the best thing to do in Vietnam or anywhere is to meet local people. I remember places fondly when I meet nice people. This is what I enjoy. I made lots of friends the first time, and that second time. So the third time, I decided to bite the bullet and have a really authentic experience. So if people invited me to be hosted, I would accept. So I rented a motorbike in Ho Chi Minh City and I traveled north through the Central Highlands, so through Dalat, Pleiku, Kon Tum, 
lots and lots of places and I stayed with local people and because I had a motorbike, I could do that. A motorbike, it's the only way to go. Yeah, so that was that trip and I made lots of good friends there also. A lot of the friends I did make happened to be English teachers, Vietnamese local people who taught English in schools or privately. They have a big problem with pronunciation because they do not have the opportunity to speak to English-speaking people. I was able to spend a lot of time helping them with pronunciation, meeting the students, which was great. Young people are so enthusiastic and willing to learn. And because they are enthusiastic and go out of their way, I'm happy to help them. I still do it on Facebook Messenger, for example. I do video chats with lots of kids from Vietnam. And you do it all for free? Yes, of course, yes. You've shown me pictures of you in villages with people that have literally nothing and you've done some very courageous and generous things for people to give them a higher quality of life, which I, I really admire. I try to help in a little way. I'm not rich. I don't have a lot of money, so I just try to work out ways that I can help people, which will maybe help them in some little way and help their life. I think education is one of the big things that can help people. If I can make the difference between one child in a village maybe getting into high school or getting university entrance because I helped them with English, then that was enough for me. So, yes, I try to help in little ways. I meet other people who do things, so I usually assist them like the lady I told you about in Kanto, who's a very strong Buddhist. Her main goal in life is to help people six days a week doing charitable work. So I spent a lot of time with her, which was an eye-opener. We went to six different orphanages, and that was sad in good ways. Some of the orphanages for small children and toddlers and babies, the toddlers, when they start to walk and climb, they're actually tied into the bed so they can't climb out, which I found a bit distressing. So my friend took me in these places and we untied the children and put them on the floor and played with them, gave them some human contact, which they're not used to. They're not spoken to. They don't have toys to play with. The staff don't allow them to have toys. So she spends time doing this and I went out and helped her for 16 days. We went to the general hospital, stood outside one day, made banana fritters. We took all the ingredients, two burners, two woks, lots of oil, about 70 kilos of bananas, packets of batter mix. So we stood outside making banana fritters for everybody who wanted them. And people visiting their relatives in the hospital came out and got the banana fritters and took them into the patient. In another hospital, which is a cancer hospital, many, many people packed into small wards 
waiting to die. But the staff there did not want us to be there. In fact, they threatened to go get security to throw us out. And when the nurse went around the corner to do that, we ran back inside quickly, went around the wards and distributed nutritious drinks which we had brought with us. I don't know why the staff don't want people treated nicely, but they resented it. I met a young girl. Her English teacher does it for free for the love of it. She had a good career in Ho Chi Minh City, but she went back to her hometown near Quang Nai. She set up a library in her home so that she could introduce poor local children to reading. She supplies free reading materials. She teaches them English. She even provides lunches for the kids that come to her house. And one little girl, she goes by her English name, Mary. She was especially keen to speak with me all the time. She was very quick at learning. She came with me on the back of my motorbike, asking me questions and Every time I told her a pronunciation, she got it very quickly. Her teacher also told me she was a talented artist. And I thought the best thing, if she doesn't have the facilities to practice art, then it would be easy to get her some materials. So the next morning, we went to the local markets and for a total of about 12 or 14 Australian dollars, which was nothing, we managed to buy her a big selection of drawing and painting tablets and paper, lots of paints, coloured pencils, charcoal, so that if she does have artistic talent, which she does, she has the opportunity to practice. So for very little money, hopefully I've made the difference to her artistic pursuits. <laughs> I can't change the world. I'm just one person with very little money and that's why I'm also surprised about people around the world whose sole pursuit is to accumulate wealth and then do nothing with it. I just don't understand. If one person can make a little difference then these people with their billions stored in the banks, why can't they do something good? Let's hope the younger generation coming up, there are some hopeful people there. It's encouraging to see. Young Greta is very inspiring, so let's hope she starts something. I think the young people are realising you just have to get rid of these old rich white people, have some real change in the world. Any little bit that I can do, I'm happy to do it. And uh, that's what I enjoy. I'm 67 years old and I'm from Scotland. I was there until I was 24 years old and then went to Canada. And after five years in Canada, I went traveling. And after one year, I got stuck in Australia as a backpacker and I still live there. I have a small farm. I like to grow my own food and be self-sufficient as much as possible. So I'm happy doing what I'm doing. You're here in the Winky House for four more days with these lovely hosts, X and Ruby and their two children, Seaver and Winky. And then what are your plans? Well, that's the end of my Vietnam trip for this year. I'm back to Australia on the 30th of January. I'm back to my little farm and catch up to all the jobs that need done that haven't been done while I was away. So there's nobody there minding the store? Ah, uh, yes, my partner Julie is there at the moment, but okay. she works and she can maintain the place to a certain extent, but not do everything. There will be lots of jobs for me. You're like 25 kilometers from the closest fire? Yeah, the closest fire was about that distance away. That was contained. What is the situation there now that you're aware of? 
the situation is a little bit better. We did have some rain after maybe six months or more of very little. The ground was bone dry, big cracks in the ground. The trees were very, very dry. It just needed one small spark to set off a massive fire. Conditions are still bad, still very hot. So things get dry quickly, even after rain. So one little spark can be dangerous and set off massive bushfires. So we have to be very careful. And that's never happened there before, has it, to this extent? Not to this extent. This yeah. is the worst ever, worst and in history. The number's astronomical for how many animals have lost their lives in this fire. Yeah, I haven't kept up to date, but I think it's estimated, I think I read half the native species, half the native animals have been killed. How did the fire start? There was one fire I read about where a man was towing his boat on a trailer. The wheel came off the trailer, the axle went on the ground, made some sparks and it set up a massive fire which burned out millions of hectares. Wow. He felt bad about it, of course. So it just needs one little thing, something careless, cigarette out a window, broken glass on the ground with the sun magnified through it, could start a fire, lots of things. Lots of fires started in different ways. Sometimes the fires perpetuate it. The smoke rises up, creates its own atmospheric conditions. It creates thunderstorms, which then creates lightning, which can start new fires. Well, we've got something in common in the sense that nothing to that magnitude, but I'm from Oregon, and California and Oregon both have been experiencing horrific fires over the past five years. And it seems to be a more frequent condition that is occurring based on our own behaviors and the change in climate. The science seems to be very definite that climate change is real. Conditions are getting hotter, and that is definitely the trend in Australia. The high temperatures were perpetuated by very hot, strong winds. So one little fire can spread very, very quickly. The winds are very hot, very strong, and that was the big problem for the firefighters. Well, I'm glad that you said that some of it has been contained. It sounds like it's an ongoing thing that could go on for quite a while, and I can only hope for the best. Yes, me too. You've had a very interesting professional career. You're a guy who likes to do things yourself. You've made your own alcohol. You were a photographer. Can you go into some detail about some of your experiences? Because I'm fascinated by people who are not seconders, people who want to figure it out for themselves and actually learn how to do things. Well, I did start my working life at the age of 16, working in a steel plant. I had an apprenticeship as an industrial instrument technician, which meant by the time I was 20, I was fully qualified and could travel around. When I was 24, I went to Canada and I was very employable. Uh, so I traveled through Canada as an industrial instrument technician. In Australia, I started working in the same field with a gas company. But then I decided to move to the country, escape from the city and bought a little farm and got married and had kids and the usual things. But yeah, you have to learn to be very self-sufficient. So my background with mechanical, electrical and electronic skills were very good. When I bought a farm, I didn't know much. Remember one example, I was standing down the bottom of a paddock one day with my newly bought wire strainers fixing the fence and straining up the old fence wires so the cows wouldn't get out. And one of the local neighbours came past and stood there and watched me. He said, you're doing a good job. How did you learn to fence? I said, oh, it's just one of those things. Easy if you know how. And he said, oh, great job. Keep up, mate. He didn't know that I had a book under my foot on the ground, how to strain a fence. You just learn when you have to.
During four years in the steel company, British Steel, I had on the job training, 18 months in an apprentice training centre where we learned all the mechanical, electrical, basic skills. Then went into the steel plant and we still went one day per week to technical college. And then after four years, we had full qualifications. And British Steel was one of the biggest companies in the country, wasn't it? It was until Margaret Thatcher decided that she was going to close it down. Uh, the steel plant I worked in was the most modern in Europe. Had just spent a huge amount of money on a continuous casting plant, just newly commissioned, and she decided to close it down. So she closed down the whole steel industry in the UK. We'll never recover. Put all those people out of work? Yes. Wow. That was like the auto industry taking a big dump in Detroit. Well, that's right-wing governments for you. In a country town, you're limited with job options, so I did lots of things. I used to cut down firewood, trees and farmers' property, which had been ring-barked and killed maybe 40, 50 years ago and were very dry but still standing. I would cut down the trees with the farmer's permission and use it for firewood, sell it for firewood. I started selling ice cream from a camper van, which I converted... I went round the street selling ice cream. I got a job repairing office equipment. And then I got a job with a very small photography business. But the man there really just wanted to talk to customers and sell cameras. And I wanted to open up an old studio, which was his grandfather's studio, but he wasn't interested. So I opened my own photography studio. I had never seen one before. So I used materials from the farm, plow discs, water pipes, Welded them all together to make lighting stands and backdrop stands. Taught myself how to do black and white printing. I got people from the street going past who I thought were interesting. Offered them free portrait sittings. And then I printed up nice black and white photographs in 16 by 20 inch. Framed them, put them outside on the street to display so that people could see my work. And my business built up from there. And you shot weddings? I did some weddings, but I have to admit I really don't like weddings. I hate all the nonsense that goes on, the money that's spent, and the money that could be better used in other ways. Even spending thousands of dollars on photographs I thought was a bit stupid. They really just need 10 good 8x10s and what else do you need? I had a copy of my wedding album and my ex has a copy of her wedding album and I threw mine in the trash. I did that with one too. <laughs> One of the good photography jobs I had, when the computers first became available and databases, I bought a computer back in the, the early 80s just so I could print some brochures and leaflets for my new business. But then I discovered I could find on a map property names, which would be difficult otherwise, and I could list them, sort them in a program so that I could then find the property name and telephone number. So I would mark out a geographical area in a country area, very large area, and all the farms in that area, I could then call the people up and tell them I was coming up in a plane to do aerial photography. So if they wanted photographs of the farm for planning, for example, a direct vertical shot from 10,000 feet, or a close-up of the front of the house with a nice crop of wheat in the background when they had a good crop, I could then mark out the boundaries on my map so I knew exactly where the property was. And then I went up flying around in a Cessna and taking aerial shots of farms 
And when the four, when I got the film developed, I picked out the best ones, made 16 by 20 prints. I had a deal with a local frame maker, so I made all the good ones in big frames, took them around the farms with a little hammer and some picture hooks and sold them to the farms. They were very happy doing that. So that was another one of my little schemes. You are so industrious. You're all about quality and I appreciate that. You've made your own whiskey and rum, is it? Yeah. Uh, Everything you do is super high level. So I can see how this translates into the quality of your life. You don't do things half-assed. Even your charitable work, you give a thousand percent of yourself in what you do. Well, I don't see myself that way, but thank you very much for the compliment. It's been an honor to spend the time with you over the past 24 hours. I know you're getting ready to get out of here. I want to thank you again, and uh, I appreciate you coming on, Charlie. It's been a pleasure, Mark. You too, brother. Cheers. Thank you. That's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Tanya and Charlie for coming on. They're two exceptional people doing some exceptional human work. And I really appreciate the fact that they took the time to come on and talk about what it is they're doing to improve the quality of people's lives, which of course is the most important thing that we can do for each other. I can't even describe to you how magnificent this experience has been thus far. And I left a lot out of what this experience is in the intro. But so many people have stepped up and been sweet. I must say sing chow, which is hello, to a hundred people a day. And out of a hundred people, maybe one or two people look at me a little strangely. But it's very warm here. I mean, it's really warm here. It's like 90 degrees with 60% humidity. But people are very warm here. And I appreciate that. Again, like Thailand, I don't see any anger. Although I did hear a lot of ambulances over the past week when I was staying at Luna Sushi, which was a little disconcerting to me. And I mean day and night, like every 10 minutes. And like my father says, that means someone's not having a good day. So a lot of people were not having a good day. What I kind of equated that to was perhaps because of the Chinese New Year, people did a little drinking and driving their scooters and did some crashing. I want to thank everybody in Ashland and everywhere else who supported me in coming and have continued to support me in being here in Vietnam. It's really exciting. I'm going to start a job. My life is taking off and I'm grateful to be here. And I'm grateful that you're listening to the show. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener supported presentation. You can hear the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, CastBox. And please, Become a subscriber on CastBox, and don't be afraid to leave comments. I love to hear how you feel about what it is that I'm doing, and be a part of this experience. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned. we got shows coming. Sing Chow and Kamun. To find out more about Tanya O'Connor and the wonderful work that she's doing, visit her online at celtic-touch.com. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. If whatever you're doing is not working, 
there's one way you can change that and that's to change what you do 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 yes i am citizen 44